Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in tech, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trunarne Unheim, futurist, author, investor, and serial entrepreneur. Join me as I discuss the societal impact of deep tech, such as AI, blockchain, IoT, nanotech, quantum, robotics, and synthetic biology, and tackle topics such as entrepreneurship, trends, or the future of work. On the show, I interview smart people with a soul, founders, authors, executives, and other thought leaders, or even the occasional celebrity. Futurized is a bi-weekly show preparing you to think about how to deal with the next decade's disruption so you can succeed and thrive no matter what happens. Futurized, conversations that matter. In episode 112 of the podcast, the topic is the future of marketing is curation. Our guest is Professor Michael R. Solomon, PhD, and professor at St. Joseph University, author of the book, The New Chameleons, How to Connect with Consumers Who Defy Categorization. In this conversation, we talk about the future of consumerism and shopping, what objects mean to us and how it's changing. We discuss the postmodern consumer and the fact that traditional ways to categorize consumers is not helpful anymore. If you're new to the show, seek particular topics, or you are looking for a great way to tell your friends about the show, which we always appreciate, we've got the episode categories. Those are at futurize.org slash episodes. They are collections of your favorite episodes organized by topic, such as entrepreneurship, trends, emerging tech, or the future of work. That will help new listeners get a taste of everything that we do here, starting with a topic they are familiar with or want to go deeper in. The host of this podcast, Trondarne Unheim, PhD, is the author of Health Tech Rebooting Societies, Software, Hardware, and Mindset, published by Rutledge in 2021, Future Tech, How to Capture Value from Disruptive Industry Trends, published by Kogan Page in 2021, Pandemic Aftermath, How Coronavirus Changes Global Society, and Disruption Games, How to Thrive on Serial Failure, both published by Atmosphere Press. Leadership from Below, How the Internet Generation Redefines the Workplace by Lulu Press in 2008. For an overview, go to Trond's books at trondentime.com books. At this stage, Futurized is lucky enough to have several sponsors. To check them out, go to futurized.org sponsors. If you are interested in sponsoring the podcast or to get an overview of other services provided by the host of this podcast, including how to book in for keynote speeches, please go to futurist.org store. We will consider all brands that have a demonstrably positive contribution to the future. Before you do anything else, make sure you are subscribed to our newsletter on futurist.org, where you can find hundreds of conversations with episodes that matter to the future I hope you can also leave a positive review on iTunes or in your favorite podcast player. It really matters to the future of this podcast. Thanks so much. Let's begin. Michael, how are you today? Hey, I'm just great, thanks. I appreciate you having me on. Oh, it's going to be a it's going to be a great conversation. I already know it, and the reason I know it is I've read some of your work. You you do excellent work. I've been reading this guy. Thank you. That's great to hear. I appreciate it. Um, Yes. So you're obviously uh, a long-standing student and professor of consumer behavior. And, and that interests me a lot because 
you know, there's nothing like the issue of consumer behavior that doesn't bring out, you know, um, these sort of instantaneous experts that are young and, and hip and have understood consumers. Uh, so that's going to be an interesting discussion for me because it, it, there is such a discrepancy between spending a career understanding consumers and then, I guess, slightly annoyingly, these people who kind of tap into consumer sentiment and are able to, I guess, you know, understand it fairly deeply because they're able to produce something based on a much more superficial knowledge of mm. consumers. So I guess I, I wanted to start there, but but only um, mostly to to just try to understand you were interested in consumers really way before it became a super hot topic. Clearly marketing, you know, is a, you know, established academic domain, but give us a sense of, was it, you know, a supernatural choice for you to go into understanding consumer behavior or from what angle, I understand you studied psychology and other things. So how, how did you, what was your attack angle? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's funny you say that because when, when I was a, a doctoral student, um, and trying to figure out where in the world am I going to get a job in a very terrible job market. Um, I, I, at that point, the, the psychology, the academic psychology job market was absolutely horrendous. They were getting three to 400 applications for every position. Um, and one of my, one of my professors happened to say to me, well, you know, given your interests and I was doing my dissertation on the psychology of fashion, much to their chagrin, um, you know, she said to me, well, you ought to look in a marketing department. And I, and I said, what do you, what does that mean? I, I you go to the grocery store. You know, I never, I, we had a business school, a very good one on, on campus, but, um, I had no idea that you could apply the, the types of things we looked at in social psychology to consumers. But, uh, once that door opened, I never looked back because I, I found that the um, the academics who were studying marketing and many of them came from other backgrounds, at least at that point in time, back in, I hate to say it, back in the 1980s, uh, most of us who, co who were coming into the field were trained as economists, psychologists, sociologists, et cetera. Today, that's not so much the case. Uh, but it really was... Um, a field that was just starting to invent itself. And it was a very, very exciting time to be involved because people were realizing that, you know what, uh, people are not necessarily like lab mice. Uh, they don't, you know, they're not nearly as cooperative as, as lab mice are. And they don't, they sometimes learn the same way, but they also do things that, uh, that are a bit more irrational that are hard to explain. And, uh, you know, getting, getting messy and looking at such an applied discipline is is not for the faint of heart because you do have to abandon a lot of the things you're taught in school about the purity of the research environment etc you know by by its very nature consumption is all about what we do not when we're being watched <laughs> but what we do in our and the rest of the time we're around you know it's fascinating yeah. I, I i just wanted to point out you shared with me that uh early early in your career you appeared in a video yourself with some celebrities to promote of all things polyester in garments what kind of a choice was that as a young <laughs> professional yeah well, where was that know, coming from in retrospect maybe i sold out too early i don't know but um yeah, I was I was asked to work on to look at consumers' attitudes toward polyester by a uh, a large textile company that happened to make a lot of polyester, 
And they had various celebrities like Miss America, the cast of Dynasty and so on, who were promoting polyester. And they asked me to come on. And I I didn't have to uh, actually extol the virtues of polyester, but just more generally why it's important. uh, What we choose to wear is important. So I I didn't endorse polyester for the record. <laughs> okay, got it. Okay. Well, well. Anyway, so you somehow made yourself your way into marketing, and and that's interesting. And you know, you've had a tremendous career. You've written a bunch of books. We'll get into well, the, your your one of your latest ones, the the new chameleons, because you you've got something uh, a really interesting message about about consumers and what's what's happening in in this market. But but just before we sort of get get to that. Um, what is maybe maybe you can just line up uh, what has happened in this field before we get to your book and where we are today? Can you get, just give mm. us a little summary? Because sometimes I feel like this field is moving so fast because it's consumers that you sort of want to think that everything that's new under the sun is actually the most exciting thing. Mm. But I suspect that as an academic, you you sort of say, no, no, <laughs> we knew something back yeah. in the eighties. What is the what is the general view there? I mean, the the field clearly is not a new field. Um, what is there right. to know about this market? Is sort of customer relationships like what is there to keep from yeah. the scientific studies, the early work? You know, what should right. people be aware of who are jumping into it today? Maybe in a marketing firm or they right. work for a large company. They're like, well, we're going to understand our market and we're going to just do it. What's the latest social media? Yeah. What is the legacy here? Well, you know, it, I'll, I'll try to give you a fairly quick answer because the longer answer would take much longer than we we have or anyone wants to listen to. But, uh, you know, I, you, you mentioned that, uh, you know, things that look new are not necessarily new. And I guess once you get some gray hair on your head, you realize there's not so many new things as you thought. It's kind of old wine and new bottles very often. You know, I mean, very, very briefly back when we first started to, uh, or my predecessors uh, started to study consumer behavior, uh, actually, believe it or not, the first studies of consumer behavior were funded by the U.S. government during World War II, and they largely centered on how do we change consumers' attitudes so that they're willing to eat uh, inferior uh, slices of meat and things like that so that we can send the good stuff to the troops, and so the, you know, it was all about changing attitudes towards, towards food or daily life when we're in wartime. And so that the, the military actually has a tremendous legacy uh, of that, especially the, the Office of Naval Research, but uh, several branches of the military. And then, and then over the years, um, so in the 1950s, when our society was really captivated by, for example, psychoanalysis and, and you know, Freudians were running all over the place. Uh, that was the perspective that was very, uh, very popular in marketing. And you had a few pioneers, uh, most notably Ernest Dichter, a name that many people know, uh, who started to apply these kinds of perspectives to understanding consumers and came up with some fascinating, if rather out there uh, conclusions. But so my, my point is, as we go through each decade, we see that the, the developments in the, in the larger scientific community and the methodologies obviously bleed in here. So in the, si- the 60s was the, the advent of the supercomputer, and everybody wanted to compute everything, thousands of data points. And so 
we switched from that psychoanalytic perspective, you know, more of a one-on-one intensive kind of thing to let's see how many thousands of people we can survey and then we can tabulate their results very quickly because now we have these computers that allow us to do that. So that actually encouraged a more mechanistic view of the consumer and that has stayed with us for a long time. But, but around the 70s and 80s, around the time that I came in, and a lot of it had to do with, the, quite frankly, with economics. People couldn't get jobs. Uh, people who had PhDs in sociology, anthropology, and so on just couldn't get jobs. And the business schools were hiring. And so you started to see this tremendous influx of people from many different disciplines, not just economics and uh, experimental psychology, which those were the two main tributaries that fed in. But now you had out of work anthropologists and sociologists, uh, English, you know, literature professors, other people starting to look at consumption as a genuine field of study, because it used to be seen as, oh, that's the frivolous stuff. That's the stuff we do when we're not being serious. But obviously consumption is hugely important as is production and matching those two. And so you started to see more uh, more of a multidisciplinary perspective. Um, and, and, and so today you have a, an interesting mixture. You've got everything from the, the hardcore, what we used to call the rat runners, you know, the the learning psychologists and, and the economists, but but even they are acknowledging that in fact the 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 acts of consumer behavior that we study often are not very logical or rational, and so they kind of contradict the basic assumptions of traditional economics, you know, of of rational man. Uh, but today we see even in economics we have behavioral economics, which is huge and. Uh, nudges and and all of that, and again, we've known about this stuff for a long time. But uh, but conventional uh, economists now, many of them have bought into this notion that in fact, decision making is not all about maximizing utility, and we often make decisions that that actually uh, you know contradict that. You know, when people when people I tell my students, you know, so for example, when you choose to go out on Saturday night and and drink way too much, and then get up the next morning and regret it, um, the likelihood is the next weekend you'll forget that lesson and you'll do it all over again. So how rational is that to get that headache on Sunday? But we do it anyway. Um, and, and so today we have a tremendous amount of, of interest in biases in decision-making and, and really exposing the fault lines there and, and showing people that People do not make decisions rationally. And, and, you know, that's even trickling over to artificial intelligence research, where we see that the, the computers tend to reflect the biases of, the, of their creators. And I'm sure you, you know quite a bit about that. Uh, so in terms yeah. of gender, um, race, and so on, um, the same biases that people express when they program computers, they do the same thing. So even so, our computers are not that rational. Right. Um, so, so that brings me though to to this idea that I think you've been working on. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong for a while, which is this idea about product complementarity. Because I guess if you just think about rational choice, you would sort of say, well, you know, I have these two products in front of me, perfect knowledge, or these five products, and I'm going to pick the best one for me. And you can sort right. of predict that with a computer, I guess, and and you know, and and adapt marketing strategies. But um, 
product complementarity, and please explain what it really is. That's also not super new. I mean, you've been working on that with uh, colleagues for for a while. What is that about? Because that's not just a rational construct, from what I understand it. It has to do with identity and and what sort of fits together in a more meaning-based kind of uh, understanding of reality. Yeah, you know, and it's a song I've been singing for probably 20 or 30 years. Uh, Not too many brand managers have chosen to listen to that song, but they should because uh, what, what we're saying here is that that when we very often when we consume, especially by the way, I'm talking about uh, B to C consumption, not not business to business necessarily. Although you'd be surprised, um, we're we're not you know, we don't. What I like to say is we don't buy things because of what they do. We buy them because of what they mean. And so marketers that that put their stuff out there, and you know, it's great to make a product that works well. We all want to do that, but. Um, they're putting products out there and positioning them based on the objective attributes of the product, miles per gallon or thread count or whatever it might be. But the reality is that when we consume this stuff, uh, you know, there's a basic minimal cutoff where we assume that everything's going to work pretty well. And you know what? Today, everything does, for the most part, work pretty well. Uh, but we're not really choosing our brands based on that. We're two, we can have two brands that both make a superior product in terms of its functionality. But you've got, you know, for example, you've got Nike and then everybody else. You know, when you look at almost every vertical, what you tend to see is there's one or two brands that are really iconic and that really dominate. And then everybody else is clustered down below them. Even though the products they make typically are just as good in quotes. Um, but the reason that those brands have succeeded to such a great extent is that they're also telling a compelling story. And that story is part of the story that we as consumers not only want to hear, but we want to make it our story. So when, when I talk about product complementarity, what I mean is that, uh, and I often say that marketers sell vertically, but consumers buy horizontally. So if, if you're in a category, uh, whether it's, you know, let's say lamps or dinnerware or salmon or hybrid cars, you know, whatever it is, you're benchmarking everything you do against the, your direct competitors. But the reality is that as a consumer, uh, you know, for example, let, let's say I'm looking for furniture for um, for a living room. A lot of my consideration is not just whether that lamp is going to work every time I, I turn it on, but how does that lamp uh, correspond to the dime, to the table and the carpeting and the and the paintings on the wall and anything else? Because people are not buying a lamp; people are buying a living room. And so there, if you adopt that more horizontal perspective where you look at how your product fits in in terms of, of how people are using it jointly with other things, what you tend to find is that we have these social roles, these identities, some of which we literally occupy, many others we learn about from the media, like, say, um, successful executive or something like that, that we learn from the media uh, from advertising and also from television, et cetera. Um, we want to, we want to uh, really recreate what those things are because in our minds, that's the project 
that we're working on, whether or not it's realistic. You know, I, I, I always have a lot of fun with my students because, for example, they watch the TV show Friends. It's been on forever, but they still watch it. And, you know, there's a great example where uh, when I ask many students, they're just beginning to, you know, make their way in the world. You know, where do you see yourself in five years? If you ask that to a 20-year-old, uh, it's amazing how often they recreate the circumstances of the TV show Friends, including the apartment that they live in. Uh, anybody who lives in New York knows that that's not very practical for those people to be living there with their incomes, et cetera. Um, but in other words, we, we all walk around with these images in our mind of where we want to be or who we want to be. And it's that constellation or set of products that help us to get there. So the brand that just focuses on what it does is really more times than not going to lose out to the brand that focuses on what it means. So lately, though, a lot of these uh, brands have switched towards even further taking it into kind of the hand of the consumer sort of with this idea of co-creation that, you know, right. you let the customer decide a little bit what it means. How, how does that translate and, and where does that fit into the research? Is that a yeah. extension of this framework or is it taking it a, yeah. even a little bit too far? Well, no, it is, it is a very important extension. Uh, you know, when people ask me, what, what do you think was the biggest event in marketing within the last 10 or 20 years? My answer is usually co-creation, to use the term you did. Because what that means is that we no longer are these passive couch potatoes who are sitting in front of the TV and letting the, the, the big commercial advertisers tell us what to do. Uh, people love brands still, but they want them on their own terms. And they tend to be much more proactive about creating those brands with the companies. And so when, when you look at you know, so many successful brands like, like Lego, for example, that have fostered these communities of, of, you know, really zealous fans of the brand who not only consume the brand in great, great quantities, but literally improve the brand because the company encourages them to, uh, to make suggestions for new products or to tweak this or to do that. And so today, you know, what, what I tell uh, managers is you don't own your brand anymore. Get over it. You co-own your brand with your loyal customers. And instead of viewing that as a threat, which many traditional companies do, they don't want anybody you know, looking under the kimono until they're totally ready to release a, a product. Uh, other companies understand that their, their loyal customers are the single best asset that their company has because they can do so much and so cheaply, by the way, to improve their product that uh, it, it, when, when companies don't involve consumers, I, it, I, I can't believe it because they are overlooking an incredible resource. The second best resource, by the way, are your, are your employees, which often many companies ignore as well. They know a lot about what you're doing, too. So I, I'm reminded that, you know, both of us wrote a book this spring and I, yeah. I'm trying to counterpose yours with mine at the moment for my next question, because, you know, I write about technology, but how, how technology isn't really about the technology because, you know, the, the, the mm -hmm. social dimensions, for, for example, the social dynamics are so, so uh, prevalent. 
And I wanted to tie this into, uh, you know, in, in your excellent book, The New Chameleons, uh, you, you talk a lot about these distinctions, you know, the, the metaphor of chameleon is, from what I understand it, it's because, you know, we, we went through the, the sort of legacy of marketing and, and it turns out, you say, that there are a lot of these obsolete dichotomies that earlier thinking had just pronounced, like we belong to certain groups, uh, whether it's, you know, gender or, you know, whether it's like, you know, there's producers and there's consumers and you, you, right. you've been uh, mentioning some of these uh, uh, shortcomings, I guess, in, in sort of historical mm -hmm. thinking about the topic. Can you take us through just a couple of these obsolete dichotomies, maybe the ones that relate the most to sort of the future or, or mm -hmm. what, what a marketer or, or even a, a, you know, a producer of, of certain goods or services need to start thinking about into this, you know, this, this sort of yeah. next decade. Yeah, sure. You know, it's, it, it, it's really difficult, especially when you teach marketing to turn around and say, you know, a lot of the things I've been teaching students for the last 30 years are no longer true, but that is the reality of it. Uh, so a lot of these groups that we belong to, you know, back in the, say, 1950s and 60s, when marketing was really establishing itself as a discipline, that was the seminal time. Uh, it, it actually made sense to put to uh, assign your customers or to divide them up into large homogeneous groups. This was a uh, you know, this market segmentation approach was actually invented by, by uh, my understanding is uh, uh, by General Motors when they realized that, you know, not everybody can afford a Cadillac. So let's, let's put, let's find a different group of consumers who have lower incomes and give them a Chevrolet and then we'll set up these different divisions. Uh, in contrast to, to Henry Ford, who said, you know, my customers can have their car in any color they want as long as it's black. So, you know, Ford, was we've come, a, we've come away since that. Yes, I think. we have, you know, so Ford, you know, his particular genius was all about efficiency. General Motors, you know, kind of built on that and said, yes, it's about efficiency, but, but the output has to be tailored to what people want. And so it, it was actually quite efficient to, to assign people to these large groups. Let, let's say, you know, women in their twenties uh, or urban women in their twenties, something like that, because then we don't have to, uh, uh, you know, pay for a unique commercial for every person. Uh, rather we can create messages and products that resonate reasonably well with large numbers. But the problem is that that, that mindset ha, uh, prevails today, even though the economics have changed, where in fact today it is quite feasible to give everyone their own unique message and, and literally to give everyone their own unique product because they can customize different components or we have mass customization techniques and so on. Um, so the we still teach marketers about market segmentation, but it doesn't work that well anymore because we as consumers no longer are content to be sitting in this large box with other people. Uh, you know, one of the, uh, the book, uh, the book Generation X, I don't know if you, if you remember that was, that's what gave the name to the, you know, all that Gen, Gen X and Gen Y uh, that was written by Douglas Coupland back around 80 or 81. You know, one, one of his chapters said, uh, was called, I am not a market segment. And what he was saying there in his, you know, in his table of contents was, 
people no longer want to feel that they're just part of a big group. They, you know, individualism. And of course we saw that in the sixties and seventies, do your own thing. Um, you know, that, that really had a big impact on, on people. And so today when I say to my students, well, you know, you're all college students at a, at an urban university, liberal, you know, private university in the Northeast, et cetera. Therefore you're all the same, right? You all accept that you're all, you have exactly the same tastes and they all look at me like I'm from Mars because, because they of course don't feel that way. Well, I wanted to point out though that Douglas uh, Copeland he didn't completely succeed because there there's now a term called Gen Y or like Centennials as Cantar calls them, which you know right. I had some affiliation with Cantar for a little while. Generational marketing hasn't died down yet, right? Why right. is that? Yeah, well, because it because it it's um, it makes sense it, intuitively. It makes sense that people of different ages have different tastes, and they do overall, but. Even if you look at a big category like, say, millennials, which, you know, we've heard for, for years and years, you know, now a lot of marketers say, well, there's actually two sublevels of millennials. You know, there's the what they call the geriatric millennials. How's that for, for an interesting term? You know, or there's the younger millennials. Um, and, 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 and clearly, you know, all things equal. Yes, a two 20-year-olds will have a lot more in common than a 20-year-old will have with me. Uh, but two 20-year-olds side by side are still very idiosyncratic. You know, they're using brands and there may be some overlap in the brands they're using, but they're, it, it's much more fragmented than it used to be. So we don't have these broad, you know, back in the 1950s, we, if you remember the famous book, The Organization Man you know, by William White and, you know, talking about the kind of mass conformity and the, the stereotype we have anyway. I have so, that book on my desk. It was an impressive book, a very sad book, actually. Yeah, very, very sad. And, you know, it kind of paints, the, it's a little over-dramatized, I'm sure, but it paints a picture of these legions of men wearing their gray flannel suits and all going on the commuter train from Westchester, et cetera. Um, you know, you, you look around today and you know, even say you look in the fashion space where I where I do some work, there's no longer, you know, some people are saying, oh, we're going, you know, we're uh, we're getting rid of skinny jeans. We're going back to to bell bottoms. You know, well, some people are. Some people are still wearing the skinny jeans. You know, it's much more diverse than it used to be. And part of that gets back to that co-creation aspect, because people are hungry to uh, to to express themselves, they're hungry to cooperate with marketers to create their own meanings, and so you know many of the and, and fashion again is a great example of this. You know, a lot of the styles that we see are actually uh, are actually modifications that consumers thought of rather than the company. You know, so for example, taking farmers' overalls, but only only fastening one side. You used to see a lot of people walk around like that. Well, that the overall makers and the farmers who wore them originally that they were co-opting didn't do that. They buttoned both sides to keep their pants up, you know? Um, so there's, there's a tremendous amount of innovation. Uh, it's much more idiosyncratic. Our society is fragmented. You know, obviously we don't have just three, three or four broadcast networks. We have thousands of channels. Most of them have nothing on them, but we still have thousands of channels. And, you know, what I like to say, and I think I said in, in, in the book, you know, if you want a good metaphor, just go to any decent sized newsstand 
and look, you know, think of what that newsstand would have looked like 30 or 40 years ago. You would have, you would have had Time Magazine and Newsweek and, you know, National Geographic. Uh, today, you've got a title or multiple titles for just about any, you know, any particular lifestyle or hobby or what have you. Uh, but Michael, this what strikes me is that given the influx of data points, also, um, I you know, th- there's a whole other sort of rhetoric out there now that you know, uh, you know, with AI and with all the data coming in, we can predict anything. Mm-hmm. So, how true is all of that stuff? Because yes, we may have split up in the old dichotomies, and and I'm just going to list a couple of them. You know, the ones that were more compelling to me. Uh, I mean, well, first of all, the, uh, you know, us versus them, I guess, you know, rich versus poor. I mean, I, I guess that's a, a very strange one in consumption anyway. Um, offline versus online, like clearly, we, you know, companies are, are, are merging those two in terms of their right. strategies. Male, female, that's, that's another one you point out, the gender right. binarism, and that ties into, you know, diversity arguments generally. Um, uh, bodies versus possessions you, you you mentioned editorial versus commercial i think we can you know we'll, we'll get into that in a second mm-hmm. but i wanted to get to to this other concept because psychographics uh, you didn't mention it as a term but it it was very much the you know part of the early marketing mm-hmm. and then you know a few years ago we had the cambridge analytica situation where that's when this big frenzied fear about like, oh no, you know, now people know everything about me and they have predicted my voting and they have predicted my purchasing patterns. And, and now it's all over for me as a citizen or consumer, because whoever has the power has the big data can predict everything about me. What do you make of that? I mean, is that also overblown? Because like you point out, this is split up into so many things that it's, yes, there's the potential, to reach an individual, but it is very complicated to find out right. exactly. Like if you were to reach me with a message, you know, how would you find the data yeah. to really do that? Yeah. Well, well, you know, I, th- I think, I don't think we'll ever be able to totally predict behavior. Uh, we're certainly nowhere near that, uh, at, at this point, we've gotten much better at it, but there's always going to be some error variance and there's always going to be a desire to confound the predictors by doing deliberately doing something opposite, you know. Um, but you know, we we also we also know that the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. And so, yes, I mean, if if I have a pretty complete uh, history of your purchase behavior in various categories, like uh, you know, packaged goods or medications and things like that, household cleaners. I mean, we are creatures of habit, and so um, the, I can make a pretty good prediction with reasonable confidence that you'll keep buying that stuff unless something really disruptive happens in, in your life. Um, the you know the ethics of collecting that data—that's another story. But it, it you know my understanding, and I'm not a data scientist, but um, you know we've we've had various uh, demonstrations where. For example, computer scientists or engineers have been given just a few pieces of, of data about a consumer, and they can identify them within a half an hour. You know, um, we we do we being you know the marketing world does know a tremendous amount about people, and I don't think that the average person on the street really understands just how much information is out there 
that you know that people can buy. So I, I these digital think, breadcrumbs that we yeah, leave behind. Digital breadcrumbs, of course, and uh, you know it, it is it is pretty sobering. Um, you know, again, the, this picture, this dystopian picture of just hundred uh, percent prediction. I, I don't think will will ever occur. But, uh, the, you know, there's always been a challenge as people started to study attitudes, psychologists back beginning back in the 40s with the war, as I mentioned, there's always been a gap between intentions and behavior. You know, and I like as I like to say, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. So there are always reasons why we can pre- I can predict that you're going to buy a car in the in the next week. But something could happen and, you know, the inventory is gone and you can't find the car. Um, But over the years, the attitude researchers have have uncovered a lot of different ways to sharpen their predictions. Uh, For example, time is one of those. And this just makes sense. Like if I ask you, how likely are you to buy a car in the next day? I'm going to get a much more diagnostic answer than how likely are you to buy a car in the next year? So, uh, you know, as we improve these things, uh, yes, it does create a more efficient system where you and I are going to get the, the, the messages that we want to get and avoid the ones that are irrelevant to us. Mm-hmm. But I do worry about that, uh, you know, da- down the road um, as, as people seem to be willing to surrender more and more of their information. And, you know, what, what I find, at least with my, when I talk to college students is they're, they're not as concerned about that as you and I might be. So this notion of privacy, and there's kind of another outdated dichotomy is kind of your private self and your public self. You know, what, what they tell me is, Hey, you know, if you, if you put your information out there, you can assume that someone's going to use it. What's your point? I know they're using it to target me, but I want them to. And they're really well, not speaking, that speaking of that, I wanted to ask you, uh, I, I guess I started out with sort of this uh, idea of whether history tells us anything or not. And, and I guess the counterpoint here is these digital influencers that sort of seemingly come out of nowhere. They have not studied, they have not taken your courses, <laughs> and they show up and not only do they supposedly uh, right, understand a key market segment, Mm-hmm. whatever that is, but they then get paid to miraculously kind of animate a segment, whether it exists right. or not. H- how do you even explain what's happening right there? Is it just because of the barrage of different impressions that you just you still need some signal yeah. in there? I, I, but I struggle a little bit with, one, what insight, what special insight do these digital influencers have? Mm-hmm. How could it be anything but ephemeral? And, and how do you even explain that it had become such yeah. a massive phenomenon? I mean, maybe you disagree with me, but the, I mean, the, they are out there and they are arguably influencing marketing in, in fairly significant ways. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I guess it's hard to argue with success, although I do think they're poisoning the well and because there's so many of them. And, you know, it used to be that the reason they my initial answer to your question five years ago would be, well, uh, they are more credible because they're they're making objective recommendations and they're not biased by the companies. Of course, over time, that has largely gone away, and many of them are biased. You know whether whether they're revealing that or not. Um, you know, to to your point about suddenly showing up and making all these prognostications. You know, the the problem the problem with that is that 
if you don't have the conceptual basis to understand, uh, you know, a sense of history, if you will, even if that history is only for the last 20 or 30 years, everything is new. You know, every phenomenon, every style, every trend is new and we have to talk about it and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Uh, now, when you talk to people who, who study uh, consumers or marketing and they've done it for a period of time, they're more likely to go to the underlying values and how they, those might be changing. And then those underlying values are going to, in turn, influence what we're doing at the moment to express those values. So, for example, right now, you know, I guess maybe you can thank the pandemic, but you've got Peloton in terms of fitness. You've got a company like Peloton, despite their recent problems, you know, on, on top of the heap. Um you know, five years ago, it might have been Pilates. Uh, then you've got yoga coming in. It's, it's almost like a horse race. But they're all racing on that same track. And the only reason that they're all successful is because of a, a more fundamental value shift in terms of the relative importance of staying in shape or eating good foods and things like that. So the people who are just kind of dipping their toe in and, you know, they're take, it, it's sort of like they're taking a snapshot as opposed to the more serious analysts who, where it's more like a film strip, you know, it's much more longitudinal in scope. So anybody can come in and talk about the latest trend. And, but I would be interested, I don't know if anyone has ever done this. I'd, I'd like to look at the shelf life of these influencers because I think there's a tremendous amount of turnover. In other words, the same people with a few exceptions, the same people who were influencers now were not, influencers five years ago and they won't be in a year or two well th this is interesting because you know, i mean you've studied fashion and you know this right because the history yeah. of fashion you know they, they are these fads and they're they're short you know the whole industry seems right. to be uh based on on the short-lived fad versus a, a long-lived even trend you you had uh, an argument about that uh, with me earlier that once something becomes mainstream even the influencer or the brand becomes mainstream and there are many examples of brands that have gone that that route right How, well first off what's your advice to a brand that is in danger of being so popular that they are going mainstream yeah. well what should they do you know it's it's the price you pay for success and it's what i call the paradox of fashion where Uh, your goal is to, you know, enhance your market share and all that. But in doing so, if you're successful, you lose you lose your more fervent uh, fans who were your original adopters. And so, you know, one one of the arguments that I that I make is that uh, everybody is 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 tripping over themselves to to expand their share, you know, to acquire new customers. But they're not looking so much at the value of their at, of their current customers, and those are the people who are their true ambassadors, their true fans. You know, as they and as they acquire incrementally new customers, these are people that are more likely to be dabblers. You know, um, and and so you you really you have to make a choice: Are you going to um, stay true to your to your first followers, or are you going to Uh, go after that mass market. And, and many, as you point out, you know, companies as diverse as Levi Strauss or Harley Davidson, or I guess Peloton or Lululemon, others like that uh, are, you know, is they, Lululemon now not cool because they're so popular? Well, I, you know, that's the, the implication is if I start buying stuff at Lululemon, it's not going to be cool anymore. 
you know. Even the fact that you and I are having this conversation probably means their stock is on the that's, decline. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Uh, that, this is not cool. Exactly. <laughs> I get it. Yeah, yes. you know, and I, I tell my, my students, you know, if you if you see some article of clothing um, on the racks at, let's say, a JCPenney in Wichita, Kansas, you can pretty well guess that it's not in style anymore because it's gone into that. It's been absorbed by the mainstream. Michael, Michael, you said you were scared because you saw that I had some bookmarks here in, in yeah. your book. And I wanted to point and scare you if I can, because uh, <laughs> maybe this is because you are established. Because on page 217, you say it. Advertising does not sell products. Right. I mean, that that one is interesting. Why why is that? Well, you know, I, I that is not nearly as dramatic a pronouncement as you might think. I I, I think a lot of people in advertising would agree with me. Uh, we've always known that word of mouth is what sells products. So what, what you're trying to do with advertising is not to sell the product. You're trying to do what exactly? Yeah, I mean, advertising is a catalyst for word of mouth. Um, in some cases, by the way, that you know, the role of advertising is just education as opposed to selling. In other words, letting you know that there's a new model of X out there, you know, or that it's on sale. Um, but often, what you want to do, you know, and, and you know, many of these, uh, you know, the really creative ad campaigns. Uh, Sometimes people often remark, well, I don't even know what the product was in there. You know, I was too busy watching the dancers or something. Uh, but, but you know, of course, they're going for that uh, water cooler effect. Of course, today it's more of a viral water cooler. But what they're trying to do is, uh, you know, after the, the day after the Super Bowl or, you know, or the, a minute after the Super Bowl, everybody's analyzing all the ads and talking about them. And that's exactly what they want to do. So they want to stimulate those conversations and stimulate interest. And then you might say, oh, you know, I saw this product being advertised. Uh, you know, my, my friend's really knowledgeable about this kind of stuff. I'm going to check with her. Uh, and so it's, it, it's, I think, again, an artificial dichotomy to talk about advertising versus word of mouth. That mm -hmm. makes no sense whatsoever. Advertising is the fuel that really gets word of mouth going. So it's very necessary. People say, is, is advertising dead? And the answer, I, I don't think that, that it's, it's dead at all, but advertisers have to understand that, that they're really trying to uh, you know, uh, get, the, get the pump going and get the word of mouth going. So if you look into the future, you, you, you think that people in your, educated in your classes will still have a job in the sense that the profession of marketing still will require some skill and that there will be a profession in business whose responsibility it is to be experts on consumers. I, well, I think there will be, but you know, I, don't, I, don't, I think that some of the jobs that students are taking now won't exist when we look at the automation of, for example, of media buying and things like that. Uh, but the, the reason I'm more optimistic about the future of this profession is, uh, well, you, you know, you titled this, this program, The Future of Marketing is Curation. And so the marketers have to understand that they, they may not be the creators so much anymore, but they have to be the curators. Because as we, as we get so much crowdsourced content, the, the reality is that, you know, almost all of it is pure junk. And so you really have to open a lot of oysters to find those pearls, you know. Uh, and so the, the, the really skillful marketers are the ones who, 
who perhaps can look at submissions from consumers, you know, a hundred submissions about ideas for that next ad and say, you know, this one is actually pretty good and go with that. So uh, curation, I think, because we are so overwhelmed with information and purchasing options, you know, what I like to say is our Ironically, you know, our biggest challenge in the in the developed world is not that people don't have enough choices. It's that they have too many choices and we're just overwhelmed with this. So that's why I think these influencers also, uh, you know, got so much traction because it's just overwhelming for the average person to wade through what could literally be thousands of options, you know, for a new sweater or or tennis racket or whatever it is. Uh, we've always relied on curators to do that. The only difference now is that the curators are not just the people employed in the field. They, they are everyday people who I are- I find that so interesting because, you know, you read about a, a term that you use in your book called micro-segmentation, and you sort of think, I mean, intuitively, you sort of think, okay, that's a new specialty. You got a micro segment, and you know, we talked about psychographics and like you know, narrowing down all the dimensions. But in fact, that's not really what happens. It is these influencers you speak about who create a hybrid category mm-hmm. and then make that attractive. That's what you're yeah. talking about with curation, is it? Is it you're yeah. making something new, hybrid, and then making it attractive enough and then attracting people into that segment. Instead right. of sort of sitting there at the drawing board and, and creating a consumer category. I mean, can that even yeah. be done anymore? Could, could any automotive or any other company yeah. create a category on their own anymore? Oh, yes, ab- absolutely. They can? I believe so. I, you know, I talk about this in, in, in the book. Um, the, the, I think the path to success when you talk about product development, uh, you know, again, you have a choice. You can either make a better mousetrap within your vertical that's a little better than the other guy who's making a mousetrap, or you come up with a brand new category, and and then you can rule that category. So I'll I'll give you uh, well I'll give you my favorite example again from the field of fashion. Uh, for a long time, you have a category called athletic wear. You had a category called leisure wear. Neither category was really very you know was doing a lot. Then you have these people like the founder of Lululemon and a few others who, you know, had their ear to the ground. They said, wow, you know, all these women and, you know, they're, they're all starting to do yoga, et cetera. And, you know, let's take some attributes from each of those two and create a hybrid and we'll call it athleisure. And if you look at the numbers on athleisure, you see it's a killer category until the next one comes along. You know, you see the same thing in, let's say, automotive. So you've got You've got uh, sedans and, you know, and then Chrysler invents a minivan. That's a new category at the time. We don't, you know, many of us don't understand today how new that category is. But then we have, uh, then we have the SUV, right? Which is now, or the crossover, which I believe is the most popular automotive category. But it's really a hybrid, isn't it? Of the minivan or the station wagon and the sedan. So it's all about creative energy, though. Still, you, you you kind of come up with that, but couldn't couldn't machines come up with these categories for us, more or less? <laughs> well, they can come up with them, but you know, it, it takes humans to go in and, and say these are the ones that make sense. You know, if, like I'm for some reason I thought of the example of when Exxon, uh, which used to be Esso Standard Oil, decided to change their name. Uh, they 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 put some letters into a computer and and the computer spat out you know a thousand different combinations 
But then it took humans to go through and for whatever reason, look at the name Exxon, which is a totally made up name that the machine created and say, yes, Exxon would work for us. So again, I, you know, I'm not an AI, I'm not a scientist, I, I, but I don't think machines are to the point where they can predict aesthetic preferences nearly as well as functional preferences. Fantastic. Any, any last word on, on sort of where you see this moving? So the new chameleons, how, how do we, yeah. you know, in, in, in one sentence, how do we connect with consumers that defy categorization? Yeah, well, you know, we, we I mean, we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. We don't say that all uh, segmentation or, or all current consumer research is useless. I, I would be the last one to say that. But we don't necessarily stop there either. And what, what we want to do is, uh, you know, um, like, I, as I like to say, fish where the fish are, you know, go, it, once you've identified a set of people who could be in your category, find those people, talk to those people, you know, live in their homes, so to speak, if you're, if you're allowed to do that, see what they're doing with the products, see how they're modifying the products and understand that there's no such thing as consumer identity. There, there are multiple identities and we're all role players who play ro multiple uh, roles and so for example when we see some some big companies for example maybe a big snack company like Mondelez is now has now reorganized so that their managers are not you know you're not in charge of pretzels you're in charge of tailgating and so tailgating is a social occasion where people play a certain identity and they want certain products. But then we move from that tailgate to the cocktail party or the business meeting or the college graduation, whatever it is, then we have a new set of needs. And so the reason I talk about chameleons is, of course, chameleons change their, their colors, uh, even based upon their mood, I've learned. They, they actually, you can tell when a chameleon is happy, did you know that, by looking at their color. Uh, we change our colors constantly. And so if, if you think you're going to just create this kind of monolithic brand that is going to fit all sizes and be good for all people all day long, uh, you know, if, you, if I'm selling a cologne to you, you know, that the cologne, if you, well, if you're still going into an office, you know, the cologne you wear to your office is not necessarily the cologne you put on when you have a hot date on Saturday night. So consumers are consciously picking and choosing their palettes of brands, but they're not just picking one and, and using that all the time. I, I get that, Michael, but I just also have the feeling like just to be a contrarian, isn't there a chance that this will go full circle like many things do in history, that it's slightly cyclical and that category was, you know, now it's like going out of fashion, although, I mean, uh, I, I don't think every company has switched to an occasion-based framework. But isn't no. there a chance that like classic will again be in and the, there's going to be respect, you know, uh, for someone who sticks to, to their guns and says, you know, this is my style. I will mm -hmm. wear, you know, I will wear my jeans. And some people do, right? They're, that's their statement. I will wear my jeans in every uh, situation mm -hmm. because this is my style. So um, I, whether it is individual products that you become proud of and do your own thing, or you just refuse yeah. to say that there are different occasions, I myself, yeah. and I will defy any of those, even occasions is a category, wouldn't you say? Oh, sure. But, but at least you're recognizing that you, you, once you put someone in a category, it doesn't mean they don't belong to another category. Right. Um, 
you know, I, I think that, so when you talk about genes, for example, it so happens that I did a lot of work with blue genes uh, at one point in my career. And, and what I, what, one of the things I found is that lots of people with lots of different identities wear blue jeans and they're what I call a bridge product. The reason for that is that when you look at the other things that people wear with them, that's where the changes come. So for example, I can have two men both wearing the same Levi Strauss jeans, but one of them is wearing a black motorcycle jacket and one of them is wearing a blue blazer with, you know, with a, with a, a handkerchief in it, a preppy kind of look. Uh, they're both, they're both using those same products, but they're customizing them and going. So that's why when we talked about product complementarity, just knowing that someone wears a very well-known product like Levi Strauss blue jeans does not tell me very much about them. But when I start to fill in the rest of the picture, that's where I start to see the unique identities emerging. So it seems to me that, uh, consumption is going to remain a complicated issue, whether in the age of machines or, or in the age of creative marketers, you, you're going to still have to fiddle a little with it, right? Yeah. And, you know, it's studying fashion for as long as I have, I, I certainly can't disagree with you. You know, the only, the only thing we can count on is that we can't count on anything <laughs> and, you know, keep your old ties because they're going to come back in, in, in fashion. Uh, so there's always going to be this point counterpoint, you know, it's kind of more like a pendulum swinging back and forth. And we could talk about, for example, gender roles being that way. You know, we might right now, gender roles are, are very, very blurred and there's no such thing as male and female, et cetera. Well, we might see that pendulum swing back to a more traditional orientation at some point down the road. I'm not saying that'll happen, but uh Uh, no matter what category you, you look at, there's going to be these swings back and forth. So yeah, nothing, nothing is forever. And that's kind of the point, you know, the problem is that a lot of marketers identify their, their cluster or their segment, and then they never bother to revisit it because they think they've already identified it. But now, you know, it, it turns out there's a whole generation of new people that are using it in a very different way. So Resting on your laurels is the last thing you can do. And that's part of the problem with, you know, large scale data, you know, surveys and so on, uh, is that by the time you collect and, and analyze the data and, and report it to the client, it might be six months later and your customers have moved on. Got it. I'm going to ask you one last question. What's the future of marketing in a, in a short nutshell? Well, you know, I think, unfortunately, we're going to continue to see uh, social inequality Uh, continue to grow. You know, after the pandemic, hollowing out the middle class, you've got the haves and the have-nots. Um, and I think that the marketing systems for those two are going to be quite different. I think the haves, it's going to be much more personalized and much, you know, customized and all that. The have-nots, and, and I'm saying that in a very, uh, you know, when I say have-nots, I don't mean people who have nothing, but people who have relatively constrained incomes. Uh, that's where a lot of the online shopping is going to continue to occur. You know, they're much less shopping in stores, but notice that wealthy people are able to afford, you know, an appointment with a stylist at Nordstrom. That's the way shopping is probably going to be to a much greater extent. So, so the in-person experience for you becomes not only a commercial experience, but it becomes a curated experience for, for the, exactly for the elite. Exactly. And it's, it's more of a status kind of statement 
You know, I, I'm, I'm actually shopping because I can afford to shop and I have the time to shop. Whereas, uh, you know, the, the rest of us are going to be doing more and more online and, uh, you know, and which is, of course, more efficient. But it does, you know, what I worry about is the homogeneity that that creates because it, it doesn't, I think what marketers need to do is build in more serendipity into the online search process, you know. So the problem with going to Amazon instead of a bookstore, as I'm sure you understand, is that you're much less likely to stumble on a book that you never would have seen before. So Yeah, there's a massive problem with yeah, uh, that kind yeah, of algorithmic yeah. targeting for sure. Because so, yeah, the better so, the algorithm is, the less interesting it is, right? Exactly, yeah. So yeah. I, I don't see an end to algorithmic marketing, but I do see it deliberately incorporating more variance and randomness in order to simulate what used to be an in-person experience. Fascinating, Michael. I thank you so much for thank this you. elucidation of a topic that doesn't seem to go away. No, it doesn't. <laughs> thank you for having me. It was great. Yeah, you're welcome. You have just listened to episode 112 of the Futurized podcast with host Trondane Unheim, futurist and author. If you are interested in Trond's products or services, feel free to check out futurized.org store where you can book a keynote speech, become a sponsor or partner, request a podcast swap, or buy a few of Tron's books, such as Health Tech, Future Tech, Pandemic Aftermath, Disruption Games, or Leadership from Below. If you are interested in all of Tron's projects, check out his website, trondundheim.com, which has links to his other podcasts as well as his public appearances. In this conversation, we talked about the postmodern consumer who defies categorization. My takeaway is that consumption is such a key part of contemporary society, yet so misunderstood. We all do it, so we think we know why. That is not the case. Retailers are getting much better at personalized targeting, yet they also fail to predict consumer sentiment again and again, both short-term and long-term. Why? Because society is so much more complex than that. I'm glad it is. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, subscribe at futurized.org or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you like this topic, you may enjoy other episodes of Futurized, such as episode 107, The Future of Art and Tech, episode 80, The Future of Personal Development, or episode 54, The Future of AR. Here's a clip from my conversation with Ben Cavallis, the co-founder and CMO of Art AI, from episode 107, The Future of Art and Tech. Hopefully, you'll find something awesome in these or other episodes. If so, do let us know by messaging us. We would love to share your thoughts with other listeners. Futurized is created in association with Yegi, the Insight Network. Yegi lets clients create multidisciplinary dream teams consisting of subject matter experts, academics, consultants, data scientists, and generalists as team leaders. Yegi's services include speeches, briefings, seminars, reports, and ongoing monitoring. You can find Yegi at yegi.org. That's Y-E-G-I-I. The Futurized team consists of podcast host and sound technician Trond Arne Unheim, videographer Raoul Edward D. Trebuithan, and podcast marketer Naheen Israfil Hussein. Please share this show with those you care about. To find us on social media is easy. We are Futurized on LinkedIn and YouTube and Futurized 2 on Instagram and Twitter. See you next time. Futurized. Conversations that matter.